On this episode of the Fifth Day State Podcast, we've got Robin Tudor back on the line. We're going to have a chat about uh, things Wu flu related, what to do if you get it, um, what you can do to reduce the chances of it and all that sort of good stuff. Um, talk about uh, some of the uh, idiocracy revolving around, uh, what is it? Um, January 6th, uh, and all that sort of stuff. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello everyone, here we are again with Robin Tudor for another, I would call it another um, another part, but I think we'll just, you know, maybe talk her into um, becoming a regular guest um, uh, for later on, um, see how much schmoozing we can do as the uh, discussion goes through. But anyway, here I am with uh, Robin Tudor again for another discussion on all things flu related uh, and any other bits of idiocracy that are going on in this wonderful world that we live in. So, hello, Robin. Hi, Cameron. I'm back. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> um, must say, the um, not that I've had negative comments or anything, but, um, you know, people are always uh, impressed with the level of conversation that we have. Uh, I think that they're just happy that I'm talking to someone else rather than myself um, through these uh, episodes <laughs> and that it is... Uh, from what I've heard, uh, the, the people who have contacted me and everything like that is it's refreshing to have um, this sort of discussion uh, that we don't normally get out here down under uh, about things that are relevant and, uh, you know, would be topical and, and that things, you know, things that people do need to know about because um, sadly these things aren't being talked about down here. Um, that's so. that's right. We we have such a dumbed down media landscape. It is it is insulting to a person's intelligence. On the odd occasion when I unfortunately am exposed to television or or radio, you know, just like when you're walking past past the thing when it's on in in some venue or whatever, and I'm I'm just absolutely amazed. <laughs> How dumb it is! <laughs> oh my goodness, it is so dumb, and that's that's really concerning. That that is the level of discourse on the TV, radio, newspapers, all of all of the mainstream media, the sort of legacy media, treat people as idiots. Yep. Like the the level of discourse is just thick. It's yep. it's what you would expect a. A primary school teacher, that's the level of conversation, like, you know, the way that you would explain something to, I don't know, eight-year-olds or, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm just amazed that people continue to use those sources of, uh, to use those media outlets as a source of information, yeah, and, honestly, and, in this and, day and age. And that's the thing is that, you know, I wouldn't even put them down as, um, you know, a, a media outlet anymore. I think that they're more of uh, an entertainment thing. I mean, because, mm. you, you know, whether you're watching one of the, the, the breakfast programs or the um, 5.30, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock inundation, that's not mm. informing people. It's inundating people or making an attempt to entertain them. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it, it's not like the old days when you used to be able to sit down and watch 60 Minutes and there'd be something 
actually worthwhile watching on there that you know you and there would... was genu- genuine investigative reporting yes. there were there were questions intelligent questions penetrating questions that the and, and, and long-form interviews that really drew out of, of the interviewee uh, a, a, a conversation worth listening to. Yes. That's you, not what we get now. It's all sound bites. Yeah, and, and you'd actually come out feeling better off having spent that time, that hour or, or whatever, the, the 15 minutes for the segment or whatever it was. Mm. You'd, you know, you would feel... Um, I won't say more intelligent, though, you know, more enriched or, or more aware or, C- or more certainly, enlightened. Certainly better informed. Yes. And better yes. place to, to make judgments about what's going on in society or, you know, what, what the truth of a particular, say, contentious situation might may have been. So, yeah, you're, you're right about the, you know, legacy media being focused on entertainment. And so it's sort of entertainment slash propaganda. Uh, there's there's a very fine line between those two, of course. If there's a line at all, maybe there isn't. Mm. And, um, you know, it's yeah, it's just one of those things is, you know, this, I don't know, I, don't know, I mean, has the, the Wu flu um, brought it to the top or has it, uh, accelerated what the the level of deception that we're going through. Um, I I think it simply made it, it has it has definitely made it obvious. Mm. The the question as to whether whether this whole whether what we've been subjected to for the last two years uh, whether it's actually getting worse. I'm 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 not sure. Probably. Mm. Yeah. I mean. Okay. Well. Here's something unrelated to the Wu flu. I mean, for for what um, we're talking about uh, with with that, something that I've noticed is that how they're pushing a, an an ill informed or their own little narrative when that's not the job of of um, the the corporate press was all this stuff about January six from the US. Um, mm. You know, mm. it's. They've said it's an insurrection. It's the worst day in democracy. It's the the biggest thing to happen in that country since nine eleven or Pearl Harbor or any of those other things. Well, as as a matter of fact, uh, many many both commentators and, and and politicians, including the vice president, has actually described it as worse than September eleven. Yes. Can you imagine? I mean, nearly three thousand people died in the terrorist attacks of September eleven. <laughs> There, there were there were some fatal. I mean, there, there was one fatality on during the actual event, which was, as you know, an unarmed woman in the in in the sort of pro-Trump crowd was shot mm-hmm. by a security uh, agent, no, by a, a yeah, member of the Capitol Police. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that was it in terms of fatalities directly related to the so-called insurrection. Not a single person who took part in that has been charged with with any uh, any crime relating to treason, insurrection. Uh, they've been charged with trespass. Yep. Trespass. And, and none of them were armed. What was it? None of them brandished a gun. Yeah. They were invited in. They were waved in to the Capitol building. I mean, you've seen the the, the video footage yep. of it. Yep. The police removed barriers and said, "Come on in." Yep. And the big question: Who is Ray Epps? Um, and it's just that you know, and everything that's going on, and our incompetent uh, politicians out here 
are pushing that narrative when what really, why should we be worrying about anything that's happening in another country? Why aren't we worrying about the, the, the let's call it the, the crap that's going on out here and... Well, no. it does serve as useful distraction, though, yes, doesn't it? it when, does. when you look at the, the sheer, the staggering degree of, of mismanagement on, on every level, like in every conceivable dimension of public life, the degree of incompetence and, and mismanagement and, frankly, malfeasance that's going on is, is I think, beyond anything that, that we've ever seen in this country, certainly anything we've ever been aware of. Mm. And what, what happens in a situation like that? The government looks for distraction. Yep. Uh, look over there, look over there. Oh, it's the anniversary of the, the capital insurrection where nobody was armed and nobody threatened right. to overthrow the government. But, you know, let's just wave that point aside. Okay, so going on with that, talking about distractions, now uh, what are your thoughts on the whole Novak Djokovic thing? Is that a distraction from what's coming or is this a genuine, actually it could be both, um, genuine stuff up by two different regimes that are trying to prove that they're the ones that have the power? I think it's a stuff up, honestly. I I think it's it's state versus federal. They're they're trying to flex their muscles. They're they're uh, sniffing the wind and 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 paying more attention, frankly, to to social media comments than anything else. And so, when there was outrage about you know Djokovic being allowed in on a medical exemption when everybody else was following the rules, then then you see the federal government tip to oh he can't come in. Um, so. Yeah, it, it, it's this one I would chalk up to incompetence. I don't think this was planned. There are a lot of people with with egg on their faces, and it's it's just uh, in in a way I have to say that the Djokovic incident is actually wildly entertaining. Like from my perspective, I'm oh, just looking is. at this going. It is. It is. Um, sorry, I'm not. I I can't remember what whether your podcast is is. G-rated or whatever. Oh, no, it's no. It's a shit show. Drop it. It's a yeah. total shit show. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, it's made Australia the laughing stock of the world. I mean, what what a ridiculous situation where if you, if you go to Our World in Data and you look at the kind of like a heat map of which countries in the world have the highest rates of, of, of transmission, Australia is like glowing, <laughs> glowing hot red on that map. Like we, we are one of the world's hot spots for community transmission. So, so what if some tennis player comes in and he's infected, which he's not. I mm. mean, he's not, right? I'm sure he had to, to show a, a negative test before even getting on the plane. So he's not infected. But even if he was, what the hell difference would it make? We've yeah. already got sustained community transmission. Now, the all, all previous public health advice, and quite frankly, a lot of um, current public health advice, is that once a virus has reached the point where, where there are multiple chains of, of community transmission or widespread transmission, there is no point in contact tracing or any other move that aim to restrict people's entry into, into a community, into a country, into a state, whatever. The, the only situation under which restriction of movement is, is justified is if you have a, a sort of geographically distinct area that has a lot of vulnerable people. So it's perfectly reasonable to restrict access to a nursing home 
or uh, or even say a retirement village where you have a lot of you know older people who aren't in great shape. Um, it's it's theoretically justifiable to restrict access to a, a particularly vulnerable community. I mean, you could make that argument about Aboriginal communities, although. Oh, that's a whole other topic of conversation. Yeah. But but um but in, in terms of restricting access to a country, a state, a town, whatever, it's it's ridiculous. We are so far past that point in this epidemic outbreak, whatever the hell you want to call it, that all we're witnessing is biosecurity theatre. It has no practical function, none whatsoever. So what's the point of it? Because theatre theater always has a point. Um, doesn't matter whether... You're, you're, you're correct, yeah. So part of it is is that it's so difficult for governments to, to walk back what they've done. So they've spent the last two years telling Australians that what they've been doing to us, what they've been inflicting on us is for our own good, that it's keeping us safe to have our borders closed and to make people wear masks and, and restrict them from restrict their movement in various ways and all this sort of nonsense. They spent the last two years telling people that and 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 rewarding those who complied and punishing those who, who didn't comply. It's so challenging to to back yourself out of that corner. Now, we do see moves toward that overseas. It's actually very striking how how this how this does move in ways. So just in the last couple of weeks, you you've had people like um Lena Wen, who is this uh, World Economic Forum stooge, basically, who pops up on, um, I believe it's CNN. She's their, their sort of resident medical expert. And in the last week, she has said, oh, yeah, look, by the way, cloth masks don't work. Mm. Um, right. Okay. So for the last two years, everyone's been told, wear a mask, wear a mask, wear a cloth, a cloth mask. And then suddenly she says, no, actually, they don't work. And then various other figures in, in, in government had said the same thing. And then you've got um, Christian Drosten, who is the head of the Robert Koch Institute, which is uh, the German equivalent of the um, of the CDC, I suppose you would say. He was he was the guy who developed the the very first PCR test for detecting SARS-CoV-2, and all the subsequent tests were modelled on that. And it's a horrendously flawed test. So so Drosten was sort of uh, responsible really for, for kicking off the, the case demic. And just in the last week, Drosten has been saying, well, you know, with this Omicron variant, uh, we don't need to take such such precautions. And like he's he's been full tilt containment theatre for the last two years. Must lock down, close the schools, put everyone in masks. You know, no going out unless you're vaxxed. And then just in the last week, it's like, well, actually, no. Um, we need to we need to sort of open the door and let Omicron in. And there's this whiplash that's going on in the German media, German news media, where they're going, hang on, what what happened here? Mm. <laughs> so so we're we're seeing we're seeing um a significant narrative shift and and quite frankly, I would say it's advanced narrative collapse. And we're now in this sort of fascinating to watch process of of all of these, you know, public figures trying to figure out like what the heck do we do to to back our way out of this and clean clean up the mess 
that we we ourselves have created you know how do we um how do we sort of break it to people gently? Nothing you've done, nothing we made you do for the past two years has made a blind bit of difference. And the the virus has got to this point. Uh, it, it's it's mutated into this Omicron form, which is a head cold, as you know. Yeah. Uh, only people who are very elderly and in terribly bad shape are, are going to get anything more than a head cold. And guess what? They were always the, the at-risk group for respiratory viral infections in the past. That was always the case. But, yeah, you've got all these true believers who, who want to keep wearing their masks and, and socially distancing. <laughs> so, I, I know, it, 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 it does my head in um, and all that. So now talking about walking back things back as, as they're, they're doing now, is this that they're you know, giving us a bit more room on the leash before they yank it tight again? Or is it, do you think that they're aware that the tide is shifting, that they're losing so that they mm. need to do this so we gain, that they gain our trust again for the next one that comes around and then they can, because we'll forget everything that's happened. So when the next one comes around, if it's, you know, 23 or 24, that the next one, which, you know, don't want to be a doomsdayer or um, conspiracy theorist or something like that. They've had a taste for power. There's going to be something, whether it's, you know, 23 or it's in 24. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Look, I, I think there is there is a possibility that the the powers that shouldn't be here, here in Australia are going to try on the sort of harsh lockdown one more time. I think, I think that that there is a reasonably good chance of that. Europe, uh, the Northern Hemisphere generally is is now at, at, at like the, its end game for the COVID narrative. There, there are hundreds of thousands of of people getting out on the streets, you know, every every week uh, across Europe. And, and they're just not having it. You know, the Austrians are out on the streets, the, the, the French, the Italians, the, you know, the, the Hungarians, they're protesting left, right and centre. Um, e- even, even the Brits are, are going, you know what, we've, we've, we've just had enough of this. And, and, you know, Boris Johnson has basically said, look, we're not doing anything particularly special for, for Omicron. It's like, it's a cold. If the NHS... Uh, is under gets under pressure well you know we might think about some restrictions but hey so far so good so um, yeah so I, I think in the northern hemisphere they have pretty that they, they haven't quite given up on COVID-19 as the the means by which they can get more power than they've ever had in their lives but they are seeing the tide turning in, in, in terms of public opinion turning against them. Whereas I don't think we're at that point here in Australia or in New Zealand where, where the, 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 the public sentiment has shifted away from the government position quite so strongly. So they might still, there might be a last gasp, <laughs> pardon the pun, um, in terms of wringing the, the, the last bit of value out of COVID-19. Uh, but then the narrative is is going to shift and uh, we've already been given a heads up about the direction it's going to shift in um, um i'm guessing you you saw that project veritas um 
sting operation on Charlie Chester, the technical director for CNN, who let slip to their, well, he didn't know, but she was she was a plant from Project Veritas who picked him up on a dating app <laughs> and that he spilled the beans to her. And and the thing that he said was that COVID-19 was really running out of steam mm. for, for CNN. It, it was mm. a ratings loser. And the next thing they were going to shift to was climate change. Mm. So that's that's going to be the the, the next step in in the like the, the narrative is going to be shifted to uh, fr- from COVID nineteen is an existential threat to humanity. Okay, it's pretty hard to argue that when it's reached the point that that the five cardinal symptoms of COVID nineteen <laughs> of the Omicron variant are the sniffles, basically, mm. you know, <laughs> like runny nose, headache, fatigue, sneezing, sore throat. Uh, it's a cold. Yeah. So, um, so you can't you, you can't really position COVID nineteen as an existential threat to humanity now. That 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 one's a a, a dead duck. So now it's going to be climate change is the existential threat to humanity. And there there may be some more pivots. I'm sure there are some other narrative lines that um, they have available to sort of pull out of the box when they when they need them, when the public starts uh, losing interest in the in the current narrative. So yeah, it's going to continue to be a shit show. That's that's my optimistic prediction for so, 2022. Okay. <laughs> ongoing shit show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't doubt that it will be the ongoing shit show. Um, my my thing is that I, I if we're going to see any lockdown, I think it's going to be WA or Queensland. Um, yeah. I don't think it's going to be Victoria and it definitely won't be New South Wales because New South Wales is liberal. Um, I tend to agree with you. I, uh, Victoria won't do it because there's too many Labor voters here and if they lock down again because it's a federal election year, it's going to make the federal Labor Party look bad and Albanese look bad. Um, considering ScoMo's come out and said there's going to be no more lockdowns, if mm. Andrews locks down in Victoria, well, he's going against National Cabinet, which is going to do, you know, take away any credibility that... Um, Albanese's got with the, the the gaslighting that he's doing about um, ScoMo's, the federal response to it. So I can't see it mm. happening there. But then after that, it's also a Victorian election year as well um, in November. So I, I can't see anything bad happening in Victoria this year. So no lockdowns like we've seen. Um, so I, I think if, if there's any lockdowns, I think it's going to be Queensland or WA. Um, WA could lock down and, and weld people in their houses and I don't think anyone would pay any attention to it because it's WA. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it's likely <laughs> yeah. to be Queensland um, because Queensland's normally a lost cause for the Labor Party anyway because anything sort of further north than Caboolture is always... Um, Liberal National or Cata yes. or One and, Nation, and yeah, increasingly, increasingly, it's it's people who used to vote for the National Party, but but don't see them as as representing their interests anymore. So mm. yeah, they they vote for for One Nation or the Cata Party, or uh, probably quite a few of them will will vote for UAP. Mm. Yeah, so so that that's an interesting take on it, and and I would incline in that direction. I mean, the one thing that I would I would say is that um, Palaszczuk may be leaned upon by Albanese to not lock down Queensland because Labor would be worried about it, it damaging their federal election chances. Mm. But Palaszczuk Palaszczuk won the the previous election. I think it was in twenty twenty, and yeah, by uh, scaremongering the oldies. Yeah. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it was just shocking that the person who, you know, locked down the state, destroyed the tourism industry, closed borders, was was returned to office. I mm. mean, yeah, people gave that a vote of approval. But, but again, I think Palaszczuk is, is concerned about the rising tide of opposition. And the, the other problem... Which, which I've discussed with you previously, is um, the level of compliance with all of this nonsense uh, here in Queensland is, is actually very low. Mm. And there's no visible enforcement of QR codes. Uh, there might uh, be businesses that, that, that are affected by the vaccine apartheid mandates are doing somewhat more to enforce that. But, but that's patchy. So, Larger businesses like clubs can afford to put someone, they already have someone on the door to check people in anyway, so it's no it's no big hassle to have that person um, check for their vaccine uh, passport. Small businesses, cafes, restaurants, uh, they're largely ignoring it. Mm, I mean, and, and that comes down to, I think, that the terminology that's used in the directions. I think it's um, reasonable... Uh, reasonable attempt or reasonable effort or something to to do that. Uh, I know I've had um, under the, the previous draconian rules a um, rather interesting discussion uh, walking into a retail store um, when you know I was questioned about this and that and showed to prove things and I said, well, no. And I said, all you have to do is make a reasonable effort. You've made the reasonable effort, so there you go. Um, there's one place that I went to that um, someone from the, you know, well away from the door yelled out if I'd QR coded in and I said, yes, I have. Mm. Uh, show me. And I said, no, I need to see it. I said, no, you don't. There's nothing in the directions that it says you need to see it. I need to make sure. I said, no, you don't. Well, do it again. I said, no, that's unreasonable. Mm. Well, you need to do it because it's keeping people safe. And I said, do you really want to go down that path? Oh, my goodness. Oh my, oh my goodness! And and it's yeah. the thing. So the, the the way businesses here seem to interpret reasonable effort is um they they whack the QR code poster up in in the front window like there it is. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and and some places down that have down here have that too. Though I think that um you know as we've mentioned before, I think that these draconian measures are bringing out the worst in everyone. Um, it's the people that. Uh, have a little bit of power when they're not used to it or they don't know how mm. to manage it and it just goes straight to their head and it, yes. it comes down to that thing that, you know, power corrupts and, and everything like that and that's what it is. That's what we're seeing is that, you know, prior to this, these people would have been the, the best people in the world to talk to yet because this has come out that, you know, they're, um, you know, being... Less than reasonable. I'm, I'm, I don't want to mm. use the words that I want to use, um, but you know, it, it's a thing. I, I think I see where you're going with yeah. it. I, I think um, Matthias Desnet, the Belgian uh, social psychologist who has brought this notion of mass formation to to public awareness, I think his take on this is is really really valid too, which is that the engaging in these pointless rituals is actually it's it's kind of like the price of admission to this new social order, this this yeah the new normal. Mm. <laughs> God, I hate that phrase. Yeah. And and he's actually said in I've now watched for I think two or three interviews with him, and he's I think he said in all of these interviews that 
the more ridiculous, the more pointless the ritual, the the more it serves this function as an initiation rite into this new social order. So if you think about how this works in, in religion, uh, the, the Catholics, for instance, are just really, really famous for, for, for their theatre. I mean, you, you go to a, a Catholic or any, any sort of Orthodox church service and, man, like it's, it's full-till entertainment. You know, there's a guy up there in a fancy frock and he's got a fancy hat and he's like swinging this, in, this sensor around and there's, there's, oh, it's even better when it's in Latin because you can't understand the bloody word of it, but, God, it sounds good. And it's like the, the, more, the more fancy but, but disconnected from everyday life uh, that the ritual is the better. Mm. <laughs> it's like, whoa, this is this is so good. I really, I really feel like I'm part of this tribe now that I've been to a Latin mass. Like, no, and I don't mean any offense to to people of the Catholic faith or or to any moment of religious persuasion, but there is there is a role that ritual plays in religion, and it's very well understood by the leaders of churches that that ritual. Uh, uh, the function of ritual is to bind people together and to give them a sense that they're participating in something that is not ordinary, that it's above ordinary life. So when people go through the ritual of putting on these stupid, pointless masks and they go through this ritual of, of checking in with their QR codes, when, like I said, there is absolutely no useful function that is played by contact tracing at this stage when the virus is, is uh, when there is sustained community transmission. No function. But it's like the more pointless it is, the more they they hew uh, to it, you know, like they, they, they cannot give it up. They can't stop doing it now. Yeah, and... I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. Yeah, are we that um, poorly? I won't say educated. Have we been? Is there okay? Is is there that mean? Is that there such a gap in a lack of um, you know genuine, legitimate role models in this country? Um, and, and, you know, let's just take Australia, for example, before we start talking about the rest of parts of the world and everything like that, that we're falling for this bit. Because, um, you know, I mean, way back when I was growing up, it's just that, you know, everything on the news was always Australia's a bunch of bludgers, um, you know, because we'd rather go to the beach or we'd rather, you know, go out and do something outside uh, than go to work and mm. all that mm. sort of stuff, yet... Now, you know, prior, prior to the flu the, the coming out, it was that um, Australia's a bunch of workaholics and now we're just a bunch of sooks. Um, mm. You know, where, where did it what, – what, what happened? I mean, you know, I, I understand to a part it's the um, infiltration of the authoritative left into our institutions and everything like that that is – um, created their own little underlings and, and then it would further push that message across and then that's influenced um, the media and, and everything like that. Though, that you know, th- there should still be role models other parts of the world. Um, like, you know, even our cricket players these days, they're, they're literally, you know, a bunch of sooks. They've taken the knee so many mm. times that I'm, I'm baffled 
about what they mm. actually stand for now. Um, whereas, you know, it, it was the thing is that, yeah, is it, is it the lack of role models? Is it the lack of, um, is it the, the destruction of the family unit um, and, and things like that? Is this, you know... I'm, I'm trying yeah. to what, what it's, causes it's a sustained it's a sustained um, multi-level attack on everything that previously gave people's lives meaning structure significance again going back to Desmet and the four preconditions for for mass formation the first precondition is social alienation where people don't don't have those, they don't have that sense of, of strong social ties and community engagement. The second second precondition is uh, high levels of free-floating anxiety. The third, uh, a, a lack of meaning, a, a lack of, like a sense that life is meaningless and purposeless. And the fourth is uh, high levels of free-floating aggression and frustration. And we see all of those conditions at work in our society, and quite frankly, they have been fostered. Now, whether whether that's uh, and, and I would say that that has been intentionally fostered at at some level. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that there are people sitting in a smoky room, you know, <laughs> going laughing maniacally and plotting out how exactly people's lives can be stripped of meaning and social connection. But it certainly has proved extremely profitable. I mean, look how the tech industry profits from from people feeling atomized and mm. is spending all day on social media rather than with actual humans, you know, with other people in face-to-face, in-person, eye-to-eye contact. So we've, we've, we have been progressively set up for, for this, phase in our our, our our history as a as a people here in Australia and yes it is being um, replicated overseas with, with a few sort of twists depending on the the nature of the culture cultural differences but we've been set up for this period in which um, we hate ourselves we've been told we've been told by the the what I would say is the captured environmental movement that we are a cancer on the planet. And the environmental movement is now busy telling us that it would be better for Mother Earth if we didn't exist, right? Like you've got Prince Philip saying, ah, if I get reincarnated, um, I want to come back as a virus that kills tens of millions of people. Thanks for that. Mm. Um, men, of course, have been told that being a man is inherently bad. Well, I mean, what the hell is this phrase, toxic masculinity? Yep. Yes, there, there are certain expressions of the masculine, which are very, very dark and very harmful. Um, Men can be senselessly violent and they have a greater capacity. Women can be senselessly violent too. It's just they can't do quite as much damage because Mm. they're, they're, because of their, their physical differences to men, which do exist. Mm. (laughs) Men are bigger and stronger on average than women. Can, Can we just acknowledge that that is a fact so an angry, violent man can just wreak more havoc than an angry, violent woman, right? But there are also expressions of masculinity that are enormously positive. You know, men are the protectors. They are the defenders. That's the expression of masculinity, which is positive, which is the, the kind of masculinity that in the past women were encouraged to admire and, 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 and be attracted to. 
look at movie stars of well, basically all previous eras hmm. <laughs> until we get to, I don't know, like 10, 15 years ago. And they were men's hmm. men, you know. Um, they were men of action. Um, th- these were the Humphrey Bogarts and the, um, you know, and the John Waynes yep. and, and, and the Clint Eastwoods yep. for that matter. Yep. They, they were men who, if, you know, if someone harmed their woman, you know, they, they, would, they would go after that person, hmm. you know, and, and this this is not a negative force in in our culture or our existences as humans. This is a positive force. Mm. But men have been told that any expression of that sort of archetypally masculine behaviour is toxic masculinity. No, it's not. One thing that's always interested me about that is that, you know, we know that, you know, every action keeps creates the equal and opposite reaction and all that sort of stuff. If there's toxic masculinity, why isn't there toxic femininity or anything like that? And if there well, is... Well, there is. Well, yeah, you know, there, there has to be and we know that there is. Why isn't that talked about to the extent that this quote-unquote toxic masculinity as well is as well? Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, that's something that, you know, especially within you know, shall I say, you know, use the term loosely, the, the, the vegan community or the vegan movement have um, been so against and, you know, not acknowledging that, uh, you know, the, the female of the species can be just as nasty as what the male of the species can. And it's, yes. it's something that, yeah. Has, Females are just nasty in different ways. Yes. Again, because, because their physical differences to males largely rule out settling disputes through through brute force. So women instead undermine each other. Mm. Women use coalition building. It's not that men don't use coalition building, but women are far more reliant on coalition building to to uh, get what they want. And what they want isn't always good. Mm. Yes. <laughs> there, there are selfish, narcissistic, mean-spirited, nasty women. Mm. Anyone who wants to deny that, I, I don't know. How long have they lived on this planet? Of course yep. there are selfish, nasty, narcissistic women. In terms of toxic femininity, um, Heather Hying, who is uh, Brett Weinstein's wife, and before the feminists howl me down, if I was talking about Brett Weinstein, I'd say he was Heather Hying's husband, okay? Mm. So just back off. But Heather Hying is indeed Brett Weinstein's wife, and she, like him, is an evolutionary biologist. And she um, she writes on Substack, which I love, by the way. Substack's awesome. And her she, she wrote a piece um, this week about about toxic femininity in, in essence like and, and how toxic femininity is actually dominating our culture now how it's really come to the fore in this covid era and toxic femininity is basically although the what, what Heather Hying expressed is that when we see people like you know CDC director Rochelle Rochelle Walensky uh, saying last year I think it was around March of last year March or April when uh, COVID case numbers were were actually dropping throughout the US, and she said, "Oh, I've got I've got this impending sense of doom that this is going to be the worst the worst season ever for for COVID." And then, of course, 
case rates and hospitalisation rates and death rates fell off the cliff mm-hmm. and no one ever held her responsible. But Heather Hines' point was that when women behave in this way where their where, where their anxiety is sort of all amped up and and they're, they're saying things like, I just have this sense of impending doom. In other words, they're using emotion-based uh, um, persuasion as opposed to to information based persuasion they're saying you you know i have a bad feeling so the rest of society has to comport itself in a way that allays my bad feeling so because i have a bad feeling and and i'm really really scared you all have to behave in stupid ways like wearing masks and 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 endlessly testing when you're not sick to make me feel better well, actually, no. If you if you have a, a ridiculous, you know, emotionally based, unfounded anxiety about something, frankly, that's your problem, and I'm not going to change my life to accommodate that. And and that's the thing is that neither we should. Um, so I mean, yeah, it's I'm seeing too much of 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 that. Is that you know, there's. I, I we've been told that you know toxic masculinity and and all this sort of stuff. So it, I, I think it's weakened us where we can't push back or question or anything that um, these uh, less than competent women in power do say. Because mm. if you do, I'm like, you're a misogynist and, and you're this mm. or you're that. So it's like, well, hang on. Um, you know, and, and, and case in point is, you know, look at, at um, uh, Julia Gillard um, for her famous um, misogyny speak, speech in Parliament uh, and everything like that. Well, first of all, I'd love to see her say it outside of Parliament. And secondly, if we talk about misogynists, let's also remember what Julia Gillard and the Labor Party has done to females throughout history and and everything like that. So, you know, that was, that was political theatre within itself. It had nothing to do with her views on the opposition. She just saw it as a chance to create political theatre and, and everything like that, and yet she's been able to ride that wave where you mm. can't even question it with, oh, no, as soon as you mention anything about Julia Gillard that's in the negative, no, you're just a misogynist. And it's like, really? How about just well, she's it's, just it's incompetent? Like, it's like calling a person who has a, a genuine and solidly founded uh, concern about the safety of, of injectable products. It's like calling them an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's it is a thought stopper, right? And and it's it's the it is the technique that is resorted to by people who are incapable of mounting a reasoned argument. So if I say that there is an obvious collusion between the pharmaceutical industry and uh, and both the health bureaucracy and the political apparatus, rather rather than debating me on the facts. You know what these people do is to say you're a conspiracy theorist. Yep. Right. So, so the, these are thought stoppers. It, and it, it similarly, um, if, if I say that there are problems in, say, the black community uh, within America that largely arise from the destruction of of the of the black family unit. Um, including 
increasing numbers of, of, of black women who become single mothers. And the US welfare system has this incredibly destructive quirk whereby a woman um, can't claim welfare if there if there is a man, you know, living in the house with her and the kids. Mm. So there's this perverse incentive for for women to uh, to become single mothers, essentially, um, in the US, and that was particularly targeted at the black community, and 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 it was targeted. This was a policy of um, of LBJ, who was a notorious racist. But but if you say, well, some of these problems that we see in the black community are almost certainly attributable to the fact that there's this high number of, uh, you know, single uh, children raised raised in a, in a family where, the, where there is just one parent and that, and that parent is the mother. Oh, you know, that's a racist thing to say and you're ignoring systemic racism. No, I'm not. Mm. I'm just stating something that, that, that is a fact. And there is plenty of evidence to, to back that up in, in both uh, in, in black, white and any other, you know, ethnic grouping for that matter, that, you know, girls are more likely to, if they don't have a father living in the house, they're more likely to get pregnant at a, at a young age. That's a fact. Um, children who grow up in a, in a house where there is no father present uh, have, yeah, as a group, obviously there are exceptions, but as a group they have reduced earning potential throughout their lives. They're more likely to get into drugs and alcohol at a young age and, and to commit crimes. These are all documentable fact. Mm. Yeah, and it's all ignored. Um, you know, obviously uh, I'm not sure whether I've said it with you, but I genuinely believe that the aim of, of the current regimes are to break up the family unit. We've gone from yes. the extended family to the nuclear family to now the single-parent family. Um, mm. and Because yeah. if the family is destroyed, the, uh, the, the centre of power becomes the state. Yeah. Yeah, and, oh, yeah, we have mentioned it. And what people yep, yep. rely upon for support is is the state. Yep. Yeah. And we're seeing that now. Um, you know, getting back to the the woo flu stuff, we've seen that with um, the uh, public comments about um, Commonwealth funding for the rats, um, the rapid antigen mm. tests. Yet, all through from the start of this. You couldn't question the PCR because that was a gold standard. Mm. Um, the Victorian government even opposed the the rats because that they, they weren't reliable. Blah 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 blah. <laughs> um, and now yeah. that you know, now that the public sentiment wants the the rats because the government has deliberately stuffed up the PCR system, where there's massive queues and and testing delays and all that sort of stuff, which is is a government problem. Um, mm. And Andrews is still allowed to be on holidays, mind you, where this time last year when ScoMo went to Hawaii due to the bushfires, he was branded all sorts of stuff mm. for going away when mm. the firefighting has got nothing to do with the Commonwealth. That's a state issue yet, hey, um, you know, it's that. So, you know, and, yeah. and this is the thing is that, you know, Albanese's um, coming out and um, everyone's coming out saying, oh, the Commonwealth needs to support the rapid action tests. I'm like, why? Why? Why does the Commonwealth <laughs> need to, to pay for something for you to stick to, up your nose? Why don't you do it yourself to, if that to, you're concerned to about it? Yeah, to continue the biosecurity theatre. Yes. Again, I mean, what, what we're seeing is advanced narrative collapse. Uh, it's certainly not not promoted by the uh, corporate media here or the legacy media of any type here in Australia. But 
the CDC in, in the US uh, withdrew its application for emergency use authorization for the PCR test. Yes, and they, they actually publicized that or, well, they didn't necessarily publicize it, but they put it on their, on their website in July of last year, uh, basically giving labs the heads up, look, we're phasing this test out. And, of course, the reason they were phasing it out was because it was so damn inaccurate. And mm. in particular, that they acknowledged, you can still see that press release, it's on their website. I, um, I, I, for some reason, I was looking at it the other day I, to, to link to something or other in an article I was writing. Anyway, so, so there it is. And, and, and it says that um, they want to replace it with a test that can distinguish twin SARS-CoV-2 and influenza. Mm. Let that sink in for a minute. So, so the CDC... And, and therefore, the US has pivoted away from PCR testing. And then you see this ripple effect throughout the world where, where, where other countries go, oh, so if the big doggy has stopped using PCR tests and us little doggies, we, we'll need to stop using it too. And then it's like, well, how do we sell this to the public when we've been telling them that this is the gold standard for the past two years? <laughs> Again, I mean, the whole thing, I'm just sort of sitting back in the armchair eating the popcorn at this point, just going, how are these, how are these, um, I was about to say a very rude word there, um, how are these incompetent individuals going to spin this one? Yeah. And, and and that was the thing that that you know I was waiting for as well. Um, yeah, and it's just yep. Now I know, with the benefit of hindsight, why the queues were so big at the PCR places, why the testing's blown out, and everything like that. Because this is what was happening. Um, you know, the the thing that really baffled me about it is that there's been such a delay in the. Uh, PCR results coming through when testing numbers are down. Like even mm. at the height of it when in, in Victoria, like they were testing, you know, 80,000 a day and the test results were back in two or three days. And mm. yet now um, they're testing, you know, between 50 and 70 and yet the week, the results are taking nearly a week. I, you know, no anecdotal. Well, they've, they've actually shut down many of the many of the labs that were analysing those results. So that that's part of the reason mm. for the uh, for the delay in processing. So yeah, which you know, part of a plan of of things. So now you mentioned the um, the flu and the Wu flu together. What's the chance of them becoming the next variant? Oh, what's it called, Florina or Florina or something like that? Yeah, well, it's so – this is, again, the media are just so incompetent. Are they incompetent? Are they Are they just, you know, deliberately misleading the public? Who knows? Um, I think a lot of it is just basic illiteracy, in like, scientific illiteracy. So it's not that, you know, influenza and, and SARS-CoV-2 are going to combine their, their genes, which would be – impossible, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're from different lineages, but it's also that they're going to sort of um, meet in a dark alley somewhere and, and, and crossbreed with each other and create a new, a new uh, variant. It's just that, you know, there have been instances detected in, starting in Israel, I believe, of, of what's called co-infection 
which is just where, like you stick a swab up, up the person's nose and you find, oh, look, they've got influenza virus here growing as well as SARS-CoV-2. Um, and the fact is, depending on what else you tested for, you might find you might find half a dozen respiratory viruses lurking up that person's snores. Um, certainly in respiratory virus season in, in, in winter, and all the more so in, in middle latitude countries that are you know prime breeding grounds for these for these respiratory viruses, you're going to find all manner of things. Um, in a person's nasopharynx when, when these viruses are doing the rounds. So it, it's just that most of the time people aren't having swabs stuck up their nose every two weeks, you know, throughout winter. If we did that, we, we'd find all sorts of interesting things up people's noses. Mm. So this pleurona thing is just, again, it's just this beat up of, oh, my God, what if people are infected with both influenza and SARS-CoV-2? Yeah, so what? What if they are? Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. It simply doesn't matter. Um, what, what we may be seeing, and, and you and I were sort of talking about this briefly before you hit record, but uh, one of the theories for the disappearance of influenza over the past two years, you know, apart from the fact that the testing might, might have um, wrongly categorised people who had the flu as people who had COVID, that's always a possibility. But one of the other possibilities that was put forward by, by virologists, and there's, there's good reason to, to think that there might be something in this, is, is viral competition. And that's where if you have two viruses that exist in the same uh, niche, same ecological niche, they can outcompete each other. You know, we see this happen with, with bacteria that live in the gut. Um, you, it, it, it's a war for space in there, right? Um, well, it's the same with viruses. It's just that we, they don't usually actually reside long-term in the respiratory mucosa. But if you've got two viruses that both like hanging out in a person's nasopharynx, but one of them's got better strategies for becoming infectious in there, then it will actually outcompete the other virus, right? But as as both of them engage in an evolutionary arms race with each other, they, they will each mutate and the, the, there'll be a constant shifts in the balance of power. And my hunch is that we're now at the point with the emergence of this Omicron variant of SARS-CoV-2, which is essentially a pussy, it is a cold virus, uh, that influenza is, is likely going to be able to step back into that ecological niche because it can uh, out-compete SARS-CoV-2. That's my theory. We'll, we'll wait and see whether mm. that pans out. Okay, so... So, so should we be worried about fluorona? Um, no more than we were worried about the possibility that at any given time we might have had an adenovirus, a rhinovirus, an endemic coronavirus, you know, a, a parainfluenza virus or any other virus living up our nose mm. at some point. So, okay, now that's a segue to that, this next bit. Um, two questions that, that um, have been popular within the, the feedback. Uh, what can people do, if anything, to reduce the risk? Obviously, this is apart from getting off your kyber and exercising and, and all that sort of mm. stuff. Uh, and mm. the second thing is what can they do if they do get it? Now, before we get into that, I saw something from Dr. McCulloch in, on Twitter where he, there was a concoction that he created that you squirt up your nose, which I believe mm. kills the virus up there. I can't recall that yeah. one at the moment, and I haven't been able to, to dig it up. Um, no, I that's all right. I don't know exactly yep. what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks for that framing. So let's let's take this step by step. In terms of reducing the risk of becoming infected, 
I, I am not going to skip over the most important facets of this, which is if you are of a healthy body weight, your risk of becoming infected is significantly reduced at any age. So obviously we, we've known from the start that this virus has a particular predilection for older people. But even in people sort of 85 plus, weight Body weight makes a difference or not, 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 let's not talk about weight. Let's talk about body fat. Mm. So body fatness makes an enormous difference to the risk of becoming infected in the first place. And it's also one of the primary determinants of the severity of infection, again, at any age. The vast majority of adolescents who've been hospitalised for COVID um, in the US, for instance, uh, have been found to be uh, overweight or obese and you know, they have a massive, um, in both senses of the word, problem with, with childhood and, and adolescent obesity in the US, and we're not too terribly far behind them. So people do need to get off their butts. If they are carrying too much body fat, they need to take all healthy means, meaning um, eating a healthy diet with a very high proportion of fresh, you know, unprocessed food, lots of fruit and veg, whole grains, legumes, all that good stuff, um, low energy dense food, and they need to be moving their bodies. They need to be uh, engaging in physical activity on a daily basis to, to help them attain a healthy body composition. Now, uh, the next most important step that they can take is to ensure that they have an optimal vitamin D level. And there is now such a, uh, it, it, it's like uh, an enormous tower of evidence for the protective effects of vitamin D, which is, of course, not a vitamin. Uh, we shouldn't call it vitamin D. It isn't a vitamin. A vitamin, by definition, is a substance that is essential for for life to continue, but cannot be made within the human body. And vitamin D doesn't fulfil that definition because, of course, we do make it in our bodies. We It's a steroid hormone. It's made when UVB radiation from the sun uh, irradiates cholesterol just under the skin and then through a series of, of steps it's converted into an active hormone. And that hormone has multiple effects on the human body. There's, there's virtually no area of, of, of human or other animal metabolism that is not affected by vitamin D. And one of the things that, that it's really, really super good at is enhancing the immune system's ability to, to fend off infection. So it plays roles in innate immunity, that like the first line of defence against infection, and also in the second line of defence, which is the acquired immune system. So antibody production, uh, you know, uh, activated T cells, all this sort of thing. So most Australians, oddly enough, are actually uh, either deficient in vitamin D or have suboptimal sub levels. It's easy to check your vitamin D status. It's a simple blood test, which your GP can order. If you do not have adequate levels of, of vitamin D, uh, which is at least 75 nanomoles per litre, and some of the research that, that has come out since the COVID shamozzle began uh, suggests that, that optimal levels for, for COVID prevention are even higher than that. But I'd say at least 75 nanomoles per litre. And the best way to get it is to go outside, uh, but it has to be at a time of day when, when the sun is more directly overhead. Uh, if your shadow is, is longer than you are tall, then you're not making vitamin D. 
So going for a walk in the morning is very nice, um, but it doesn't make vitamin D. It has to be sunlight exposure on as much bare skin as you can uh, get away with. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, uh, obviously, we don't want burning. We just want the skin to, to like you want to stop your sun exposure just before the point at which the, the skin's starting to turn pink, assuming that you have a light shade of skin. Obviously, if you have more melanin in your skin, um, if you're more darkly pigmented, you will need more sunshine exposure. And this is one of the primary reasons why we see this differential uh, effect of, of, of COVID-19 on uh, dark-skinned people compared to light-skinned people, particularly dark-skinned people who live in parts of the world where they do not get as much sunshine exposure as their skin type um, uh, preconditions them for. So we've seen these really, really low rates of COVID-19 illness and death in Africa, where obviously anyone who's native to, to the area is, is, is dark-skinned, um, but they spend their time outdoors. You know, it's much more of an outdoor way of life in, in Africa, so they're, they're, they're pretty good for vitamin D. Um, but when you see black people or even um, darker-skinned people from, say, you know, India, Pakistan, Middle East, when they move to parts of the world where they don't get as much sun exposure, you see rampant, rampant vitamin D deficiency in these, in these ethnic groupings. So they need to get sun, and if they can't get enough sun to, to achieve optimal, achieve and maintain, especially maintain throughout winter optimal levels of vitamin D, then they should consider supplementation. And if a person becomes infected with, with SARS-CoV-2, a, a bolus dose of vitamin D, so like a pretty high dose, somewhere between five and 10,000 IUs uh, for, you know, a week or so, will help to, will help their immune system respond um, much more uh, vigorously to, to the infection and, and therefore contain the virus. Now, the, you mentioned the... The nasal spray. Well, the nasal spray. This is a, a povidone iodine solution. It's basically betadine, but it does need to be watered down because it's too high strength. So what Peter McCulloch recommends, and you can... This is part of the protocol that is available through FLCCC, the Frontline COVID Critical Care Alliance, which... Uh, you just you know, go to flccc.org and they have for free their prevention and treatment protocols. So they have an early treatment protocol for COVID um, for people who've just started to develop symptoms or who have mild to moderate symptoms. And then they have various sort of levels of escalated protocols for people who are more severely ill and also for, for people who have who are so ill that they've been hospitalised. Um, these protocols are based on the treatments developed by, by successful doctors, successful doctors who did not sit on their hands waiting for the tablet to be handed down from on high, telling them how to treat their patients. Instead, as soon as their patients started getting sick at the beginning of the, of the pandemic, they began examining carefully the mechanism of action of SARS-CoV-2, the kinds of pathologies that patients were showing. And they selected uh, pharmaceutical drugs, so uh, mostly, you know, cheap, generic, patent-expired drugs, and, and they repurposed them to, to treat COVID. And they've been wildly successful. You know, Shankara Chetty, who is um, 
of Indian origin, but, but he lives and practices in South Africa. He's treated 7,000 patients, 7,000. Not one single hospitalisation, not one death. Brian Tyson and George Fareed, who practice in California, um, Imperial County, which is like a, you know, it's a poor part of, of, of California, where there's a lot of undocumented workers, Mexicans basically, mm. across the border, and and um, workers, essentially slave labourers, in largely in agricultural settings. And again, between them, they've treated uh, over 7,000 people, and they haven't had a single death in a person who came to them for treatment within a week of diagnosis. And in, in total, of those 7,000 people they've treated, there's been just a handful of hospitalisations and, and deaths. So there are very, very successful treatment protocols. Uh, as I say, organisations like FLCCC put them out there for free. The povidone iodine solution, so it's a 1% dilution, 1 to 100 dilution of povidone iodine in water, uh, or saline, basically, mm. and you squirt it up your nose. So uh, if you, you can actually get this betadine um, nasal irrigation solution online. If you are unable to obtain that, you can just get yourself some regular garden variety betadine. You've got to dilute it down with, with saline and you put it in one of those little squirty bottles, what like a like a fess um, nasal uh, saline spray bottle and you squirt it up your nose. And if you do that two to three times per day, either as pre-exposure prophylaxis, in other words, if you're going out into a place where you expect there to be community transmission or you're going going to look after a sick relative, for instance, you're you're going to care for your granny who's got COVID. You're taking her some soup and whatever. And, and so you're going to be around her for a while. So you squirt this stuff up, up, up your snores before you go visit granny. And then you do it again when you get home from visiting granny. And if you start to develop any symptoms yourself, then you would just up the frequency of, of, of the squirt. So you could do it, you know, three, four times a day. And so that's the povidone iodine solution. Um, it has also been found that even just a standard garden variety uh, germicidal mouthwash, like, like, say, Listerine. Now, this one you do not squirt up your nose. Mm. You, you just gargle it. And that reduces the, the viral load very, very dramatically. So if, if people use the nasal irrigation and the mouthwash mouth and gargle a couple of times a day, they will reduce the viral load, which means they will get less sick, okay? So they will still have some viral replication going on, but the amount of virus that they develop will be dramatically reduced and therefore they'll have fewer symptoms and they'll get over it faster. And just so many things I want to say about that that, that I think that we need to depending on what overlords are going to be listening to this and looking and everything like that that this is only general information doesn't take this into general doesn't general take into advice. account yep into account any individual's not, personal things i am not prescribing yep. medical treatment i am advising that people go to these websites and take a look at these protocols yep. and they should discuss them with uh, who, who, whichever practitioner Competent they, they trust medical with, practitioner. Their, with their healthcare decision. Yep. Yes. Um, yep. Just want to get that clear and before someone, whether it's six months down the track or whatever, points them, oh, you're giving medical advice. Well, we're not. This is just a general conversation. You do with the information what you want to do with it. If you want to ignore it, go for it. If you want to look deeper mm. and do your oh. own homework, go for it. 
And bear in mind too that particularly with the sort of the sequence multi-drug protocols that the likes of Shankara Chetty and Peter McCulloch and, you know, George Fareed and Brian Tyson and, and all these other doctors have developed, although these are off-patent drugs, they do still re require a prescription. So, so you you can't sort of self-treat. Uh, so this is definitely not medical advice that I'm giving you, right? Like you would actually need to get a prescription. Some of them are available over the counter. I mean, for instance, some of the protocols use um, uh, basically it's Tagamet, you know, the the uh, acid suppressor drug. Mm. Um, so, so some of these are available over the counter, but most of them do actually require a prescription, which obviously means that you would be getting medical input along the way. And the sequence multi-drug protocols are essentially almost like decision trees. So if the person has this risk factor, for instance, then add this drug. If the person develops that symptom, add that drug, right? So it's not medical advice. I'm just telling people where you can get this information from. Yep. Okay. All right. Now, talking about medical information, where it comes from, and all that sort of stuff, um, thought we mentioned last time about Joe Rogan's discussion with uh, Peter McCulloch um, mm. and all that. Now, he has talk, spoken to... Um, Robert Malone. Robert Malone, that's it. Um, the creator, inventor, or, or primary technician in the mRNA technology. Now, I've heard some of the other things that he's done on... on um, other podcasts and everything like that. Haven't listened to the Joe Rogan one as yet, but um, it's interesting that I think one of them, I think Joe Rogan's been booted off Twitter. Um, if he hasn't, my apologies. Um, I'm not preempting no, anything. No, he, he hasn't. He hasn't, okay. but Malone, Malone has booted off Twitter the yeah. day before his interview with Joe Rogan took place. Now, now Rogan has actually... I'm not, I'm not sure if Rogan has left Twitter, but he has, after speaking to Robert Malone, he has opened a, an account with Getter, which is essentially a Twitter alternative, like a Interesting free speech about that one alternative too. to Twitter. Mm. Interesting comments So about that. Rogan has publicised that and I'm sure because of Rogan's reach, um, I'm sure that that will have resulted in thousands upon thousands mm. of his listeners who are mostly sort of youngish males opening accounts on Getter. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. um, but, yeah, no, it's interesting is that, you know, um, these organisations, big tech, um, uh Claiming that they're the town square, so they need to be protected, yet they're not acting like the town square. They're acting like editors and suppressors of information, whereas... As censors, yes. Yeah, censors, Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's... I, I, I think that the, the banning of, that, of, of Dr Malone on Twitter, I think, I think that's going to come out worse for them um, mm. because... I, I think so too. And, uh, I mean, obviously Malone is not the only person to have been booted off Twitter. Uh, there have been many high-profile deplatformings from, from Twitter. And I think, we've, you know, each time they do it, they undermine their own credibility just that little bit more. And I don't know where, where, when the tipping point will be reached, you know, at what point they will have deplatformed just that one additional person where the tide turns against them and they have a mass exodus from their platform, which would obviously be extremely financially costly for them. 
Um, I mean, I, I, I think it's more the fence sitters that are going to be woken up and changed. Like the hardcore lefties and all that are, are going to stick on it, and that's where mm. big tech thinks the money is. So, you know, it 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 may you know play out with that. You know, the, the banning of Trump. Well, people will say he sent mm. me tweets. So the average average fence sitter will say, "Oh, yeah, that's justified." Um, oh, no, no one else on Twitter has ever posted a meme tweet. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. Twitter's a zoo. Oh, it is. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, which mm. I think was the catalyst yep. for Joe Rogan, her getting booted, uh, I think the um, corrupt corporate press has done a good spin to make her um, you know, appear with a few kangaroos short in the top paddock. Um you know, oh, a QAnon conspiracy yes. theorist. Yes. Yeah, look, I mean, she, so, she expressed some, some ideas yep. which I personally consider to be not terribly well-founded. She's also said some some pretty damn sensible things and I think at, at any point in time, uh, um, well, uh, throughout a person's lifetime, if, if you haven't said at, le- at least one dumb thing mm. in your life, you probably haven't lived very long. And, and every novice politician always does that. They always say daft things. And and yep. all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, it, it's the thing, um, especially for ones that uh, haven't been bred into politics. Um, the more yes. common, uh, they've gone through media training. Yeah. You mean? Yeah. The, the, the more <laughs> the more you know, realistic the person is, the more likely they are to say daft things on Twitter and, and think, oh, yes. well, I'm bugger it. Hey, let's just say it, um, and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I think with Dr. Malone being booted, it's probably going to wake a few more fence sitters up. and The thing about Malone, and, and I did, it, it took me three days because it's like a three-hour interview and I, I, I watch all this stuff while I'm doing my morning weights workout. So, you know, even though I was I was watching it on, on 1.75 speed because Malone does speak quite slowly, so <laughs> I can watch it at 1.75 and, and still not miss a whole hell of a lot. So anyway, <laughs> it took me three days to watch the damn thing. Um, it, was, it was amazing. And Malone is such a steady character. He's very careful in what he says. He comes across as, because he is, Mm. incredibly intelligent, of very, very high integrity, just a a, a straight shooter, but very careful to, to not to not be sort of leaning out over his skis. So he doesn't speculate about the motives of any individual or any agency. He He's very, very careful to stick to the facts. And by the time he finished laying out those facts about the extraordinary behaviour of the FDA when it came to the oversight of the the clinical trials for the COVID-19 injections and what what FDA did not do, you know, for example, the absence of a data safety monitoring board, Uh, the the FDA just basically turning a a blind eye to these outrageous safety signals that that have been thrown up um, both both before any of these products uh, gained emergency use authorization, and, and and since then, I mean, the safety signal that these products are are giving, even in really underreported pharmacovigilance systems like theirs and Dayan here in Australia, that safety signal is just 
so outrageous. It's so crazy. It's so over the top. And the emergency use use authorization of these products for younger adults and, and teenagers, and most especially for children, is so completely outlandish, mm. so lacking in any scientific justification. It's all risk and no benefit for kids, teenagers, young adults. And and by the time he'd finished laying that out and also obviously discussing the, the suppression of early treatment, I you would have to be so mired in your blue chipness <laughs> um, that that you basically did not have any functioning brain cells to not by the end of that interview be thinking, wow, he's a smart guy. Um, I think I need to take seriously what, what he just said. And let me let me relay a little anecdote to you about the impact that that, that interview is already having. A client of mine has three adult children. Um, all of them have had the, the jab. Um, my client has been, you know, as, as a concerned dad, he's been sending them, you know, scientific studies and links to interviews with really, really super smart people, you know, people like uh, Piet van den Bosch, the Belgian vaccinologist, and, you know, and Peter McCulloch and, and, and all these other people. And he's his children were basically going, yeah, Dad, you're a crazy conspiracy theorist. Vaccines are the best thing since sliced bread. Can't wait to get my booster, all the rest of it. So this man's son uh, happened to listen to he's, – he's a fan of the Joe Rogan podcast. So on a road trip, he listened to the McCulloch interview and then the Malone interview kind of back-to-back. And when he got back home, he rang up his dad and said – okay, Dad, I get it now. I understand. I'm not going to have my booster. There's no way I'm letting this stuff near my kids. And my client was just, he was literally weeping tears of joy. He was just, because he, he, was, he was at the point of going, you know what, I've done, I've done all that I could. My kids won't listen to me. They think I'm nuts. And Joe Rogan was able to reach uh, this this young youngish not like 30 something man mm. who just could not be reached with the more um science and, and and sorry I let me reframe that Malone talked science right but the way that Rogan drew out the the story from him was really easily digestible by everyone including people who who don't have a grounding in science so yeah rogan is is an amazing um force of nature and again i'm I'm kind of sitting back in the armchair eating the popcorn and 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 watching on to see how how does the legacy media handle this rogan reaches people that they're not reaching i wouldn't even say that the legacy media i'd say how are these medical professionals going mm. to treat that when these these chief health officers are pushing, locking people up, keeping people inside, keeping people away, face diapers, et cetera, et cetera. How are they? And, treat, and, and not, not offering them any early treatment, yes. not giving them any advice on prevention, not telling them what the real risk factors are, yep. okay, not, not giving them any useful protocols that could be used for um for exposure prophylaxis, 
for treatment of of the, the viral illness at that very early stage when if you if you give people early treatment you keep the them out of hospital and sorry let me be specific the ones who are at risk of of the disease escalating to a sort of moderate to severe case where they might land in, in hospital. They're the ones who can be kept out of hospitals. So on the one hand, we've got the, the chief health officers and, and just the medical bureaucracy generally, as well as the politicians, all hand-waving about the possibility of our hospital system being overwhelmed. And quite frankly, they've had two years to get their shit together, yep. right? Yep. Wasn't it two weeks to flatten the curve so they could yep. gear up hospital capacity? You've had it, folks. You've had your two weeks times 50. Get your shit together. Yep. If you can't treat people adequately after two years of this, get out of the game because you're useless, hopeless doctors. Yep. You're no good. Step step aside. Make room for other people who've got better ideas. Yep. You've and got I'm, evidence-based treatment protocols. I mean, even our dictator-in-chief, um, you know, April Fool's Day last year, promised $1.3 million investment for another 4,000 beds. He's yeah. walked that back Where saying, oh, I never said that. And it's just like, well, man, you've got a press release that says you did and you're insane. Yeah. And, you know, it was the, the big doom and gloom is that this was going to be a massive thing and he actually said he would take over the exhibition buildings or I can't remember what the other building was in Victoria uh, for as a mass ICU. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, mm-hmm. it's the thing is that we've got the capacity to do it and yes. why are these... No, well, let's. Just, I mean, it's a it's a thing. Is that yeah? I think that the reckoning um, will come. I don't mm. think it'll come soon enough. I'm not, and I'm not hoping. Oh, there's 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 more havoc to be wreaked yeah. before this ends. But yeah, if they if they want to reduce the burden on the healthcare system, start giving people meaningful, actionable advice on prevention on pre-exposure prophylaxis and on early treatment rather than saying to people well if you test positive just stay home mm. and 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 wait uh, stay home you know isolated in your in your uh, home environment and and go and infect all your family members right um and 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 if you get so sick that you can't breathe and your lips turn blue we'll come into hospital and then what do they do once these people are in hospital the the standard protocol is remdesivir or as the as the ICU nurses uh, dub it, run death is near. Remdesivir, you know, the failed Ebola drug that was so toxic they don't even use it in Ebola, a disease that has a fifty percent case fatality rate. It's a failure of a drug. It, it causes renal failure. What happens when your kidneys fail? Your lungs fill up with fluid. Huh? How about that? When your lungs fill up with fluid, you develop pneumonia. Mm. So that the TGA has approved remdesivir as the standard of care when a person is hospitalised for COVID-19. The World Health Organisation, it's not just that it doesn't recommend remdesivir, it recommends against remdesivir. But the TGA says that's what you use in hospital. So, again, if they want to reduce the burden on the healthcare system, why are they using remdesivir? Again, the WHO is absolutely explicit about this. Remdesivir does not reduce severe illness. It does not reduce the duration of hospital stays, and it doesn't reduce death. It has no meaningful benefit 
for people with COVID-19. But that is is the standard protocol. Yeah, and, of course, they're still venting people. They're yeah. still putting them on ventilators. I mean, two years in, they're still using a treatment that, that <laughs> doesn't mm. help. <laughs> and, and, I mean, this is the thing. It comes back to what we talked about, I'm not sure what episode, about decentralisation. I, I think... Get rid of mm. get rid of Atagi, get rid of the TGA, get rid of APRA and everything like that. Go yes. back to the states controlling it. There should never be Commonwealth bodies in the first place because the Commonwealth has no jurisdiction to to pass laws on that and to even govern it. Mm. Um, That's correct. And you know, if if we move to state bodies, which I think that there should be, because the states are the ones that can control licensing and registration of medical practitioners, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, well, then. We'll find out and let the market decide because if, let's say, Victorian has draconian ones where you can't mention the I word or the um, HCL mm, word or anything H like that. The H word, yes. Yeah, the H word. <laughs> but New South Wales turns around and says, hey, man, whatever works, go for it, off book, mm -hmm. on book, whatever. Well, then you're going to find out that the New South Wales doctors are going to be getting more work, getting having better results, which should hopefully open the eyes up to the New South Wales. So, I mean, but yeah, one centralised body governing Everything that your doctor can and can't say is is ridiculous mm. and leads us into the corrupted system that we're in now. It's an absolutely corrupted system mm. and it is fundamentally, well, it hasn't just undermined, it has destroyed the doctor-patient relationship. Yeah. The do doctors swear an oath. They don't actually swear the Hippocratic Oath, but they do swear an oath when they're, you know, licensed as, as, as medical practitioners. They swear an oath that they will serve each patient, you know, as an individual to the very best of their ability. They don't swear an oath to government to do as government tells them to do. They're, there's, there's a fundamental difference between public health and the practice of medicine. And historically, these, these two... Mm, institutions have always been separated because public health is about um, public health is 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 about groups of people right public health is uh, is in, in public health it is considered acceptable to sacrifice the few for the many um, public health practitioners don't really want to admit that, but but if you really back them into a corner, they will say, yeah, you know, any any for instance vaccination program, um, there will be there will be casualties, there will be people who are vaccine injured, there will be people who who die um, from the administration of vaccines, but hey, it's for the greater good. So that's the mentality of public health. That is not the mentality of of the doctor patient relationship. In the doctor patient relationship. The, the doctor is expected to, to consider the patient sitting there in front of them and what is best for them. Mm. And so that doctor needs to be free to say to a particular patient, when considering the cost-benefit analysis or the risk-benefit analysis of you having this particular treatment um, vaccine, for instance, in your particular case, it is my medical judgment that the that the risks to you outweigh the benefits, right? A doctor needs to be free to say that to a patient, even though that would run in opposition to to the uh, to to the intentions of public health, right? But when when you force doctors into this role 
or where, where they're expected to implement public health policies, you essentially abolish that doctor-patient relationship. You put the doctor in an untenable position in which they actually can't practice medicine because medicine is not public health. And and that's what we're seeing now is that they're doing everything that ATAGI and everything like that says that they have to do. Um, I mean, and, and what is ATAGI? ATAGI is, is basically composed of, of people with so many conflicts of interest that uh, if you were doing a sort of network analysis map, you, you'd need like six pages, six A3 a pages to just to map it all out. Mm. Um, these, this, this is agency capture, regulatory capture, right? ATAGI's members are, are mostly people who have financial entanglements with the pharmaceutical industry uh, more broadly and the vaccine industry in particular. And when you look at ATAGI's guidelines, you know, issued to or the, the ATAGI advice on, on how the government should handle the um, emergency Omicron, which was issued just before Christmas, um, I'm doing a detailed analysis of, of that at the moment, which we published on my, on my Substack. Hopefully I'll get it done before the weekend. Um, it'll, it'll be there soon, so check my Substack for that. Um, but ATAGI's advice is, is, is not... In any way, shape or form, sorry, let me be specific, Atagi's advice to government on how they should handle the Omicron variant is diametrically opposed to what the scientific evidence, uh, like to the direction the scientific evidence is pointing to. Like they, they are recommending, they're recommending that eligibility for boosters be extended to every adult over the age of 18 in the country and that the interval, the time interval between completing the primary series, so the first two jabs, say with your Pfizer or Moderna, and having the um, booster shot should be reduced initially from five months to four months and then to three months when capacity permits. So they are saying that everyone should be getting boosted, every adult should be getting boosted. And they don't say whether that Every, whether that's going to be every three months or whether it's just, well, we'll do it after three months for this one. Yeah. Using, using so-called vaccines, injectable products that are targeted to the original Wuhan type, the wild strain of SARS-CoV-2, which is extinct. And so the antibodies that these, these products induce uh, Omicron has developed the capacity to evade those antibodies. That's problem number one. So you're going to be jabbing people perhaps every three months with a product that does not induce the type of immune protection that's actually um, matched to the, to, the, to the current strain. And problem number two is that Omicron has uh, mutated to the point where it has very low infectivity in the lungs, but it is very highly infectious. It's like 70-fold more infectious in the upper airways than Delta. Now, the thing that, that your listeners need to understand is that the antibodies that are produced by a vaccine are blood-borne antibodies, okay? They're what are called circulating antibodies. They circulate in your bloodstream. These antibodies cannot penetrate through to the respiratory mucosa. So, so those sort of ready pink linings of your nose and your mouth and your throat, these, the, these are the naso, uh, nasopharyngeal mucosa. When a virus enters the body, if you've had 
previous exposure to, to that virus, uh, you will produce what are called secretory antibodies, particularly secretory IgA, secretory immunoglobulin A. This is a type of antibody that is produced by lymphocytes, immune cells that live just below that, that mucosal surface. And when they get the signal that a virus has entered the body, they pump those antibodies through the respiratory mucosa and they're present at the site where the virus is entering and they can neutralise the virus there. Blood-borne antibodies can't. Okay, so I hope I'm making this clear. There is no way that a vaccine for a respiratory viral disease that induces antibodies in the blood, there is no way that those antibodies can stop a person getting infected with a virus that enters through the nose <laughs> and, and the mouth. Uh, uh, yeah, um, and I think this has been the, the, the problem or what, has been considered a conspiracy theory right from the start is that this is, you know, it's a respiratory virus and it will mm. decay and do what respiratory viruses do. And yet, virus going to virus, as yes. Alex Berenson said on Twitter before they threw him off. Yeah. And, and that's <laughs> the thing is that now it, it's doing what it does and yeah, it, it just, I don't know, man, it, the, the whole thing just, just baffles me. Um, about that um but anyway mm. um yeah so we've been going for about an hour and a half now I oh might, my goodness yeah so I we know. have time flies right. when you're having we'd... fun um <laughs> I might, we'd better wrap it up yeah wrap it up here um there will be uh as i alluded at the start man so many people are enjoying these love to keep bringing you back um time permitting and everything like that uh so you know, it's no, a, I'm happy to come back on and answer any questions yep. that your listeners have. And I do hope that people are feeling reassured that, that there is effective treatment available. By the way, those FLCCC protocols aren't, aren't the only ones out there. There are other protocols. Uh, Vladimir Zelenko has made his treatment protocol available for free. Uh, if you just type in, you know, Zelenko protocol, you'll, you'll find his. Um, Peter McCulloch has teamed up with, with Elizabeth Lee Leet and they have a website called, mm, uh, I can't remember it, but I'll, I'll, I'll get it to you so you can put it in the show notes. Is, is that a um, .com so that, or a .org? I can't remember it, .com or .org? Uh, for, for which one? The, oh. the, um, oh, the come on. one? Yes. Mm. I was trying to crack a very poor joke there that just. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Boom. No, that, that was, that was me being sick. Um, yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll shoot you that one. But that, so they, they put protocols up. There, there are lots of these protocols available that, that people can, can take a look at and discuss with their, their trusted, um, health advisor. Um, many of them involve, supplements, you know, nutritional supplements that you can just buy over the counter. Some of them involve um, over the counter pharmaceuticals. Some of them involve um, prescription pharmaceuticals. And so, yeah. I mean, I think that is important to say is that, you know, it's not the end of the world if you do get it. Um, it's if not you the have end had of the it world. before, it's not mm. the end of the world. I mean, we get the flus, we get colds, and everything like that. The human body and will survive. Particularly. Particularly at this point uh, where where the virus has mutated to this Omicron variant, which 
it's, look, it's going to become the fifth endemic coronavirus. It's going to join the other four coronaviruses that we've all been exposed to since we were little kids and that cause colds every year, in, in particularly in, in younger children whose immune systems kind of need a little practice, and that, you know, from time to time cause, cause colds and flu-like illnesses in, in um you know, older people as well, adults and and uh, across the lifespan. So yeah. it's going to join that that pool of of circulating endemic coronaviruses. There will always remain a small percentage of people who who are susceptible to more severe illness, and there is a good treatment available for them, and they should absolutely familiarise themselves with those treatment options before they ever get sick so that they they don't panic if, if they do start to develop symptoms, right? They know how to treat themselves. They know how to how to keep themselves um, from, from getting seriously ill. And it, hopefully they will have a trusted health advisor where if, if things pop up during the course of their illness that worry them, they, they can, you know, get that person, get that person's oversight so that they're not self-treating in situations where that could possibly be dangerous. Yep. And, and I see, yeah. don't panic, help is help is there um so that's it yeah thanks for that and before we wrap it up how about you plug everywhere you are and where, where people can find you so i am really really enjoying substack and in the past i've always asked people to go to my website which is empowertotalhealth.com.au and sign up for my weekly newsletter and of course i'd still love you to do that but but uh, if you join me on Substack, if you subscribe to my Substack, which if you just go to Substack and look for my name, Robin Tudor, or my Substack, um, the title, which is Empowered, then you, you can join me there. And uh, there are so many other interesting people, uh, and, and there are some awfully smart people in general and COVID-specific smart, um, on Substack, people like Matthew Crawford and this German dude uh, who's who goes by the, the nom de plume Eugippius. Um, just wonderful, wonderful articles. There, there's another dude who calls himself El Gato Malo, the, the bad cat, and his Substack is is just amazing, well worth subscribing to. So, yeah, come join me on Substack. I'm still on Facebook. I don't know why. It's just just like having a bad drug habit or something. I don't post there terribly often, but if you're on Facebook and you want to follow me there, <laughs> um, I'm selling this really well, aren't I? No, you can join me on, on, on Facebook either, um, you, but feel free to friend me or you can follow my um, my business page, which is Empower Total Health. And likewise, I'm kind of embarrassed and ashamed to admit that I am still on Twitter. Sorry, Twitter. And you can follow me there at Empowered Robin. But I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking that a mass walkout from, from Twitter is is exactly what the twats at Twitter richly deserve. So uh, once once mm, I think with, with Malone getting onto Getter and a lot of other, you know, interesting, intelligent people leaving Twitter, I within the next couple of weeks, I'm probably going to be off Twitter. So you might find me on Getter instead. And then there is my Telegram channel, which is COVID Truth Bombs. And that's where I post links to 
scientific articles that I'm reading and videos that that I'm I'm watching, not not the sort of fear porn stuff that commonly gets shared around in Telegram. I post links to to videos that I think help people understand what's going on, both from a scientific and a and a socio political cultural standpoint. So they're all the places you can join me. All right, thank you for that. Um, so we'll have to um, tie you down or um, coerce you into another episode. Oh, um, yes, please. Sure oh, we'll... sorry, sorry, yep. sorry. One more thing, one more thing. I, I listened back to our previous episode and I realised uh, I wanted to actually correct something that I, I said. Oh, I referred oh, on several occasions to, to, the, to the Dutch East India Company when I actually meant the British East India Company and I was so embarrassed to hear that back. I went, oh, my God. Now, the Dutch East India Company was also really, really bad and served for its government much the same purpose that the British East India Company did. But if you um, – so if your listeners – haven't got around to listening to that episode, or if they did, every time I said Dutch East India Company, just substitute British East India okay. Company. Okay, I will, I will update the show notes up. on that one. All right, beautiful. Yep. So let's um let's do this again, and I absolutely invite your listeners' questions. More than happy to to answer anything that's on anybody's mind that is that is woo flu related. Okay, thank you. We should do that. Um, I'll keep prodding people for questions and, and everything like that and even thoughts, comments and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, thanks again, Robin, for joining us on, on this episode uh, and we will be in contact again. So Fantastic. Thanks so much for, for inviting me on. Thank you. And that wraps up this episode of the Fifth Estate Podcast. Uh, show notes for this one will be over at uh, the fifth.estate episode 27. Uh, while you're there, uh, please subscribe to my mail list, uh, become a member or anything like that. Um, please share this uh, recording with uh, those who you think will be it will be of value to. And uh, yeah, because you know, as Robin said, it gets the word out. Uh, if you've got any questions, please uh, send me an email. Uh, through comments on social media, or you can send me an email to podcast at the fifth.estate. So uh, there'll be comments on a uh, link for that uh, on the show notes, which you will find once again at the fifth.estate forward slash episode 27. So once again, thanks for listening and look forward to having you join me on the next one. Bye for now.